Dame Vera Lynn, Ditchling, Sussex. We'll meet again. She sings to me, softly. Not for long, because Nanny's got things to do, and she's not the sentimental sort. But there's something about this song, and I love her sitting there on the bed, holding my hand in hers, looking into my eyes, which grow sleepy as she sings. Up the wooden hills to Bedfordshire, heading for the land of dreams. And I'm under the orange eider down in the bedroom at the top of the stairs, in her terraced house in Leighton, in the east end of London, in the early 70s. But the song is taking her back to the days before there were grandchildren, before there were children, before her Frank came home from the war, before there was a war. Before the bombs and the burning and the sirens and the shelters and the night spent watching as a fire warden during the blitz, before all that, when life was simpler and sweeter and the brightest light in her life was the way Frank smiled when he came off the pitch after a win or covered in mud and sweat and joy, shining long ago. The evening breeze slips in through the open window bringing the pulse of a reggae bass that unsettles Gladys and brings her back to the moment. And now she's nanny again and there's washing up to do before Grandad gets back from the pub, so she bends to kiss my cheek and I keep my eyes closed as if asleep and feel the sudden lifting of her weight from the bed and then its absence and hear the creaking of the stairs as she goes down and still the little fluttering tune turns over and over in my head. Up the wooden hills to Bedfordshire, heading for the land of dreams. It's not even a song for kids, really. It's sung in the voice of a young woman who is nostalgic for the easier days of childhood, when big, strong daddy would lift her onto his shoulders and carry her up to bed. <laughs> they had different tastes in 1936. The singer wasn't famous then. She was not even credited on the label, but I wonder if Gladys knew her. A girl from just down the road with the same name as her sister. Vera, one of her own, who had been singing in the pubs for years. She was just making her way in the world. Neither of them knew what was to come. And here I am now, a grown man parking a car, trying not to hit a flint wall in a narrow lane in a picture-book village on the South Downs, with seagulls laughing overhead, and the same slight song on my tongue, thinking of Gladys and the last time I saw her, in a care home, holding my hand. And I'm about to meet someone who feels like family because of all that, but who I have never met before. Dame Vera Lynn. Someone whose name has become synonymous with courage, defiance, resistance, community, endurance, and all the values of the wartime generation. Someone who appears in the history books my children bring home from school as one of the names and faces of the Second World War, alongside Churchill, Hitler, and Stalin, but who obviously stands apart from them, not least for being a woman, who stands for us the kids know her as the woman of the war, an icon in khaki with a military cap 
arms out wide, leading the blitzed but unbowed people of Britain in a chorus of We'll Meet Again, the anthem that will get them through. She is someone who was voted in a national poll as the person who most embodied the spirit of the British in the 20th century. And someone whose dog appears to be eating my boots. He likes you, she says, but I don't think he does. Digby the Jack Russell is growling and chewing on the toe cap of my right boot and I don't want to kick him off for fear of hurting the poor little fella and upsetting the great dame. But actually his teeth have pierced the leather and now my toes and it bloody hurts. You! No! That is the voice of Tom Jones. No, not that one. A former RAF pilot who is married to Dame Vera's daughter, Virginia, and who is now attempting to take control of the dog. It's not a threat, he declares to Digby, who lets go of my foot, but seems unconvinced. Tom tells me the dog was traumatised in the past by a farmer who used to kick him with big boots. Shall I take them off, I say. Oh no, I wouldn't do that. So... Digby is taken away, yapping and unhappy, and I am left to rub my toes in the company of a legend. I don't use that word lightly. Not many people deserve it. Dame Vera Lynn, though. Crikey. A legend has built up around her, that's for sure. It's an honour, I say. You'll have to speak up, says her daughter, because Dame Vera is 97 years old now and her hearing is not what it used to be. I'm quite deaf, dear, she says with a smile, sitting in an armchair with her hands folded in her lap, wearing a plaid shirt of green, blue and red and a necklace of heavy green beads. The light from a standard lamp behind her illuminates Dame Vera's finely spun white hair and creates a halo. I'm here with Caroline, the wonderful woman from the record company Decca, who has made this meeting possible. They're about to put out an album of previously unreleased recordings that will take Dame Vera back into the charts, the oldest person ever to get there. This is the only interview she will give, and both Caroline and I are aware it may well be her last. Probably best not to approach it as an interview as such, Caroline told me. Maybe... Think of it more as tea with an elderly aunt. And that's good advice, I realise, as Virginia kindly offers a slice of Victoria sponge and tea in a proper china cup. Vera was born in East Ham in 1917. She was the daughter of a docker called Bert and a dressmaker called Annie, who'd been married for four years. When Vera was a toddler, she had croup and nearly died, but... As she got older and her lungs recovered, it became obvious that the little girl could really sing. In the twenties, before the wireless, that was a precious talent. She earned her first pay for singing in a working men's club at the age of seven. They paid her seven shillings and sixpence. When Vera left school at fourteen, she tried sewing buttons in a factory, but only lasted a day. Nobody was allowed to talk, and that didn't suit this happy, gregarious young woman. So her dad said, OK, well, you can earn more money in one night of singing than you can in a week at that place. Her real name was Vera Welch, but that didn't sound right somehow, so they chose her another, Vera Lynn, her grandmother's maiden name. It was a family decision. 
Vera made her first solo recording in 1936, at the age of 18, although she wasn't credited at the time. It wasn't with any of the bands or orchestras she sang with. This was a low-key session, with the high, clear purity of her voice, backed by nothing more than a murky, mournful organ. She and Gladys were the same age, roughly speaking. They grew up in the same place at the same time and were part of that generation of women who lived in the East End but also listened to the wireless, got their news and their music from the airwaves and heard the voices, day after day, of presenters who spoke in the clipped accents of received pronunciation that sound almost comical to us today. So my nan Gladys and Vera grew up sounding half Cockney and half like the Queen. Her speaking voice today reminds me of my nan. I've got goosebumps. What happens next almost certainly means more to me than it does to her. But to me, it's truly beautiful. Up the wood now to Bedfordshire Heading for the land of dreams. Just listen to that. Dame Vera Lynn, at the age of 97, singing a song she recorded when she was 18. Not one of her big hits. It didn't mean a great deal at the time, but it found its way into our family life, into my heart. And she just sang it for me. Wow. Up the wood hill to Bedfordshire. Heading for the land of dreams. That was just her opening number, of course. By the time war with Germany was declared in 1939, Vera Lynn was famous as the singer with Ambrose and his orchestra, one of the most popular acts of their day, who toured the country and appeared on the wireless often. Radio was the only thing we had, she says. Somebody asked the soldiers, sailors and airmen preparing to fight which singer they loved the most and Vera was their choice. After that, she went solo and became known as the Force's Sweetheart. And the bombs came close very soon. She was singing in a show with the comedian Max Miller at the Holborn Empire in September 1940 when the Blitz began. The Allies had been driven out of France, the RAF had narrowly won the Battle of Britain, but now the Germans chose to send heavy bombers to rain down destruction on cities and civilians. They wanted to break us. They nearly did. The East End took it hardest first, with 625 tonnes of high-explosive bombs and thousands of incendiaries dropped on the first day, Black Saturday. Gladys was there, under it all. Night after night they kept coming. Nearly 6,000 Londoners died in the first month. And as the docklands and gasworks along the river burned bright, the bombs spread west towards Westminster and Buckingham Palace. Vera continued to sing in the theatre and in nightclubs when she could and to make appearances on the radio through all of this. She would drive from her home in the east to her work in the west in the afternoon before the raid started in a little Austin 10 car. It had a soft canvas roof, she tells me. That's why I always carried a tin helmet with me, in case the shrapnel came through the roof. 
She once told Sue Lolly on Desert Island Discs that if there was a raid on the way, she would stop the car and get out and lie in the gutter. I remember driving one time. It was a horrible wet day, she tells me. The car skidded and overturned. It landed on its side. People rushed to help me, saying, Are you all right? I got out and had a look, and I said, Yes, I'm okay. They righted the car, and I said, Well, I've got to be on my way. I got back in the car, but it went, De-doing, de-doing. <laughs> I'd broken the axle. Still, she kept working anyway, going by bus. The whole country seemed to be listening to a radio show of hers called Sincerely Yours, which was on air on a Sunday night, directly after the news and often after Mr Churchill. And not just in this country. The programme was aimed at those serving abroad who sent in thousands of requests for music that would mean something to their loved ones back home. There's an intimacy about the way she talks to them in these broadcasts. You'll hear from me again next week. Good night, boys. You can just imagine hearing that in some distant outpost, dreaming of your girl back home, or your boy, or your mum, or whoever it was you longed for, at a time when voices on the radio were so formal and so often full of dreadful news. She sounded warm, close, loving. And all this while bombs were falling. I ask if they kept broadcasting through everything, and she says, Oh yes, nothing stopped if there was a raid on. Sometimes she sang at the BBC studio in Maida Vale, and sometimes from a restaurant in Lower Regent Street called the Hungaria, which declared itself bomb-proof, splinter-proof, blast-proof, gas-proof, and boredom-proof. Sometimes it was impossible to leave. She tried to sleep where she was. We used to make ourselves as comfortable as possible on the floor. Vera, maybe 97, but she's mentally sharp and gets cross when she can't remember the number of the bus that used to get her home afterwards. She doesn't think of herself as brave. The song that ended those weekly radio broadcasts was the one that would become her anthem, We'll Meet Again. Vera first heard it at the music publisher in Denmark Street before the war. They had a pianist to play it for the artist to see if you liked it, she says. They fixed a key for you and did an arrangement. You'd go to the studio and find the band leader there. You'd sing it to them so he would know how you were going to sing it, when you wanted the music to build up and when to quieten. Then it was recorded straight away, all live. If the trumpeter cracked on the last note, you had to do it all over again. You had to do your very best to make sure that the take you did was perfect. I tell her about auto-tune, which means you can now sing off-key and the computer will correct you. She's horrified. Keep them in tune. We never sang out of tune. They used to call me One Take Lynn. I ask her, why does she think We'll Meet Again resonated with so many people? It's optimistic, she says. Everyone was separating, going to war. It was a nice lyric. It spoke of hope, you know. We'll meet again. Because you never knew what was happening from one day to another. A bomb could hit any house, any night. She remembers a letter from someone that illustrates that danger. A man was walking through the streets and he saw a billboard up with me performing somewhere. He thought, yes, I know that girl. I listened to her on the radio. 
I'll go and see her. He stopped and went in and saw me perform. And when he got home, his house had gone. It got a direct hit. So he always said I saved his life. She laughs then, a deep, hearty laugh of pleasure at having been able to do some good that one time. We'll Meet Again had been written as the world braced itself for war, anticipating a time when mothers and fathers and daughters and sons and husbands and wives and lovers would be separated, as she says, and would long for the day of reunion. A song for the parting, a promise for the future, to be sung or spoken at the railway station, on the quayside, at the crossroads, and an idea to keep them going through the tough times to come, even if they all knew there was a chance that what they were singing about and hoping for might not come true, at least in this life. On a deeper level, We'll Meet Again taps into something very old, perhaps as old as life, certainly as old as ancient Rome, where their notion of the afterlife involved being transported to a further place beyond death, where those we love are waiting. For early Christians informed by the beliefs of Rome, that reunion was a key part of heaven. The Torah promises the Jewish faithful that their loved ones will be there for them when the time comes. The Quran says something similar. The Persian poet Rumi, at least in one modern translation, writes of a field that lies way beyond wrongdoing and rightdoing and says, I'll meet you there. Not every religion contains this idea, but many do. And nowhere is it heard more powerfully than in the songs that grew up out of slavery in the American South. Those spirituals that say, against all the odds, things may be bad now, but they will not be bad forever, because life is not meant to be this way, because God is on our side and God is love, and one day everything that is wrong will be made right. There will be no more sorrow. There will be only joy. And those of us who have been torn apart will run into each other's arms again if not in this life, then the next. My friend, Mark Halliday, who died far too young from cancer, was a fine poet who wrote this as the end approached, seeing what was coming. After by Mark Halliday I will drift gently upwards until I see the great golden gates in front of me. Slowly I'll approach and wait. Well done, the voice will say, indicating one of many mansions mine for millions of days, but I won't walk in. I'll quietly ask for five chairs, and I'll sit there beside the gate and wait, with four to spare. The first phase of eternity will be spent watching for early signs that you are on your way. As you arrive, one by one, you can sit down beside me while I say, tell me everything that I missed. Then I'll listen as the story of your lives unwinds like a ball of golden wool. The day you bend your bike stabilizers. The day you swam across the pool. How you spent your birthdays. The day you left school. When we're finally all together, only then will we stand and walk into eternity, a family of five forever. 
tightly gripping each other's hands, like we used to when we crossed the busy road to the park. We'll Meet Again has echoes of all that, but it also worked powerfully for those who didn't believe in any kind of afterlife, like my grandmother Gladys. She didn't believe in God, but she believed in Frank. And she had to believe she would see him again, literally in flesh and blood and big strong arms and kissable lips. It was what kept her going. She insisted on it, as so many did. We find hope any way we can. And on a very simple level, this song is a song of resistance on behalf of suffering humans who refuse to give in. You've got to sing something, so why not sing that? You can sing it even if you don't believe in heaven, even if you don't really know what it means, even if you think it's irrational, because on some base level, deep in your gut, the song is a promise that somehow things will be better. Somehow everything will be okay. Some sunny day. Vera was as brave as the boys who were listening and asked to be sent to the front line in the jungles of Burma. I was getting letters from the boys and I thought I would like to go and see who I had been singing to. The trip she took in 1944 was 11,000 miles each way. Was she scared? I can't say I felt really scared. I never went anywhere on my own, she says. Not that there was anywhere to go because I was in the jungle. I was always well looked after by the boys. In the concerts, there were always guards around the perimeter. Today's performers would not dream of entertaining the troops without an entourage, a stylist, a makeup artist, a sound system and a security detail. She went to where the fighting was with a pianist and a pistol. We stopped in the jungle somewhere along the way and I tried to practice with the pistol. I wasn't very good. Vera is slipping back in time in her mind. So I can't say I ever felt scared, although I woke up one morning and there were four Japanese prisoners leaning on my basha, the little grass hut that I was living in. They'd been captured in the night. I had to step over their legs to get by them. The look I got. This young girl walking by in the little khaki shorts. I shouldn't think they'd ever seen a white girl. Was she worried then? No. The boys were around to protect me. She was at the supply base for the Battle of Kahima, everything having been dropped in by air. How far away was the fighting then? The battle was up the hill. I was at the bottom of the hill. One day... Vera stumbled into the wrong tent and found herself in a makeshift operating theatre where they were trying to save a soldier who'd been shot. They were digging this bullet out of a boy's arm. I apologised to them for interrupting. The surgeon followed me out and said, here's a souvenir. He gave me this bullet on a little piece of lint with all the blood still in it. I had it for donkey's years. I lent it to the Imperial War Museum and I never got it back. She should get in touch with them, I say. And Vera laughs. Yeah, where's my bullet? 
She performed on the back of a truck and in a cow shed that had been half torn down to make a stage. They used an old-fashioned microphone plugged into the batteries for searchlights. A lipstick was all the glamour she could take. I went out with a bag to sling on my shoulders. That was about it. I took a dress, but I couldn't wear it because of the mosquitoes. If I went out with my sleeves rolled up, the boys would shout at me, Roll your sleeves down! They didn't mind her having bare legs, though. No, she says, and I bet they didn't, but I don't say. Makeup was no good. It would run. I didn't have a lady companion or anything. I only had 6,000 men. That was how many she sang to in one day. I just washed my hair in a bucket and left it like that. I'd had a perm before I went, so I, it was all frizzy. She shows me a picture of her being presented with a bouquet of jungle flowers wrapped in surgical gauze. One of those boys there didn't get back. The photographs show the men looking slightly dazed by the company of this beaming beauty. These are her boys. The legend of Vera Lynn is that she was welcomed like one of them. But in the photograph she shows me, I have to say, there are some men who look at her sideways in a hungry way, like they have more on their mind than a sing-song. Was there really never any trouble? Absolutely not. They behave perfectly. I reminded them of their wives, their girlfriends, their sisters. They treated me with the greatest respect. She was, it must be said, in the most dangerous and unglamorous of circumstances, absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. They behaved like gentlemen. Vera was married by then to Harry Lewis, a member of the RAF band, the Squadronaires. She was away in Burma for three months. I ask what she did when the war ended, and I'm startled by the answer. While others were at wild parties, Vera was in a horrifying place. The day after peace was declared, I was in Germany entertaining the troops, she tells me. The government phoned me up and said, we want you to go. So I packed up and went. Vera sang her stirring, uplifting songs for the soldiers who had only recently liberated the concentration camps. They took me round the ovens where they used to gas people. I saw the gas chambers. They were like a row of garages with steel doors. No birds were flying. They said the gas was still in the air and no birds would fly. After the war, she worked with Harry on a pop career and became the first British performer to top the charts in America in 1952. Her last number one in this country came two years later with My Son, My Son. As it happens, she and Harry had a daughter, Virginia, who now manages her mother's affairs. For the next 30 years, she made radio and television programmes, continued to record albums and toured with particular success in Canada and Australia. She worked hard for charities associated with the war veterans and was made a dame in 1975 when the Queen said to her, you've been waiting a long time for this. Way back in wartime, Vera Lynn had sung for the young Princess Elizabeth at her 16th birthday party. They'd become associated with each other over the years, so it was fitting that her last major public appearance was outside Buckingham Palace, where she led the crowds in a sing-along to mark the 50th anniversary of the end of the war in Europe. 
The song, inevitably, was We'll Meet Again. Those celebrations were huge, but they also felt like the end of an era. Dame Vera gave a remarkably strong performance for a woman already pushing 80, then kissed the boys in Chelsea Pensioner Red and headed off into retirement. Harry died four years later, after 58 years of marriage. So many of those who sang along with her have gone. I ask what music she listens to now for comfort or pleasure, and the answer is surprising. I don't listen to music. Why not? I don't know. I never have done. The only time I used to listen to it was when we recorded it, to see if it was okay. I don't listen to the radio. I would rather watch television. I'd rather see action. She's getting tired. There is one more thing I want to ask, which is sensitive. She's 97 years old. Long may she live, but nobody can go on forever. Sacred songs have been part of her repertoire. So what does she think comes next? I think there has to be something. What it is, I don't know, she says. I wasn't brought up to pray. There's a long pause. She's uncomfortable. It's a difficult subject. She may sound a little afraid, but it strikes me that for a singer of sentimental songs, Dame Vera is remarkably unsentimental. She's always faced challenges with a matter-of-fact attitude that defies death or danger. Singing through the Blitz? Just get on with it, girl. Risking life and limb to get to Burma and cheer up the boys? Just a matter of duty. And whatever does come next, she will take it as it comes. She may be frail now, but I tell her that for the rest of time she will be the bright-eyed girl with her arms open, singing to the troops. Well, that is lovely, really. I didn't set out to be anything like that. I was singing since I was seven. I developed what I had. People used me, in a way, to do something, and I was glad of it. I was just doing my job. And then, as I'm leaving, she asks a question that I find really quite shocking. When they write about the war, will they include me in it? <sighs> what she's really asking, in her ever-modest way, is will they remember me? And I say, yes, Vera, I really think they will. And now I'm almost crying because it's the summer of 2020 and the world is in lockdown. None of us can see the ones we love. Some of us are all alone and lonely. Some are mourning those who've been lost. And Vera is on the radio again. The Queen has been addressing us from Windsor Castle, finding the right things to say as ever, comparing these dark days to the war and calling on us to show the same spirit her generation did, even using words that quote her old ally Vera's song. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. 
We will meet again. A video has been made for the 75th anniversary of VE Day, which begins with footage of Dame Vera in black and white, shining bright, singing a duet down the ages with Catherine Jenkins. Suddenly, it has new meaning. Some day soon, it seems to be saying, we will not have to keep our distance from each other. We will not have to wear masks and stay at home. This version of the song is also sung by soldiers, by nurses, doctors, tube drivers, vets, dentists, pharmacists, road diggers, by people from all walks of life, standing apart for safety, singing together to the camera, trying to keep smiling through. And it's beautiful, inspiring, it shows the way a song can connect us, even a very old song which still seems to have so much power. But that's not what is getting to me. I'm listening to yet another new recording of We'll Meet Again, this time by the stars of the West End, whose theatres have gone dark in the way they did when the Luftwaffe was overhead. And here, among those defiant voices, is that of Dame Vera, now aged 103. The clarity and purity of old is gone. Her voice has been sunk low and laced with gravel by the ravages of age, and she is speaking now instead of singing, but it's still her, and it still reminds me of my nan and the song she used to sing to me at bedtime, and they're saying on the news that Dame Vera has gone. She's climbed the wooden hill a final time, the girl they all loved, the girl whose voice was a comfort and who was a light in the darkness. The woman who defied the bombers, who dared to go to the jungle, who wept at the sight of the gas chambers and who kept singing long after the war was over, keeping the memory alive, expressing all the things her people could not say. The last of them, still on active service, as she was called in her old age, still defiantly insisting here and now, right to the very end, almost with her last breath, on behalf of us all in a time of plague, that we will, we surely will, in whatever way we can, however we mean it. And I don't know what it means, but it means something. We will meet again. Some sunny day. Thank you for listening to the story. Can We Talk is brought to you by Hod of Faith, and you can get in touch with me via the website hodoffaith.com or on social media as Cole Morton, because that's my name. I'd love to know what you think and hear any stories that you have about remarkable people that you've met or the ways in which connection with people has changed your life. Thank you, and go well until we meet again. Here's a rough recording of Dame Vera talking at her home in Ditchling with her daughter Virginia present and Caroline 
from the record company and a crackling fire. And this first excerpt is when I ask her about Up the Wooden Hills to Bedfordshire, the song that my nan used to sing to me that she had got from a recording by Vera, which I think was her first ever professional recording before the war. Up the Wooden Hill to Bedfordshire Heading for the land of dreams Oh, it's lovely. It's lovely. She wasn't just at home singing songs. Dame Vera also went to the front line to entertain the troops. And here's a little bit of her talking about an encounter in the jungles of Burma. I was walking around the, the uh, casualty tents, you yeah. know, and I walked unbeknown into one that was being used as a for operations. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, they were just digging, digging this bullet out of a boy's arm. Right. And uh, so I quickly apologised for interrupting the operation yeah. and went out and he followed, the surgeon followed me out. He said, here's a souvenir for you. And he gave me this bullet on a little piece of lint with all the blood still on it. And finally, something that really brings it home, a letter she's describing from a man who said he was at work uh, during wartime, and then on his way home, he saw a poster that said she was singing nearby. And he said, oh, I'll go and, uh, yes, I, I know that for a girl, woman. I'll go and see her. So uh, he stopped and went in and saw me perform. When he got home, his house had gone, got a direct hit. So he always said I saved his life. Yes. <laughs> 